Well, this morning we are looking at Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 39, and a significant uh, part of the text today is the feeding of the 4,000, or what they call, or what they say at Red Robin when they see my family showing up. That's the, that's the one place that we can actually get a little bit of bang for our buck because of the uh, unlimited fries. And Vanessa's got it down to such a science that when they come to take the water order, she just starts telling them, just start the fries, just get the fries going. She really does. And then last night, we, we went to Matt's restaurant, Von Ebert, and he wasn't there. And they, they don't have free fries. <laughs> they don't. They charge for sides on kids' meals. How, yeah. How can you, how do you guys live with yourselves? <laughs> that was not the feeding of the 4,000. Maybe it's because they want to turn a profit. <laughs> so we do come to um, the second feeding in, in Matthew's gospel. Uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000 was just a few chapters back. And I remember and for, for years, and maybe even this is the first time you've heard that. Yes, there are two feeding stories. It, was it 5,000 or was it 4,000? There's two. There's the feeding of the 5,000 and there's the feeding of the 4,000. And the feeding of the 4,000 only occurs in Matthew and Mark's uh, Gospels. And unfortunately, the, the commentators are... They're, they leave something to be desired when you get to the feeding of the 4,000 because they just make a lot of the same applications that they did with the feeding of the 5,000, which there's a lot of truth to that. But I think there's something significant going on in why both Matthew and Mark would give us the feeding of the 5,000. Excuse me, the feeding of the 4,000. I might do that today. The feeding of the 4,000. And particularly where it comes in their Gospels. The last few weeks here... We've been looking at Jesus' engagement with the Pharisees and how they've been dealing with clean laws and about how the Pharisees were elevating certain ceremonial laws uh, to a place that was above their God-intended place. And and the one that we've used by by way of example several times is that uh, the priests were to ceremonially clean themselves before they went into the temple. And what the Pharisees had done is they'd extrapolate that all the way out to mean that you should wash yourself all the time. And that people that didn't adhere to that kind of uh, washing were therefore unclean and, and didn't really honor God as they ought and, and, and weren't the true zealots and, and weren't those that took their religion and their faith seriously. And we're familiar with that because we do that. Because we do that as Christians. We elevate certain aspects of who we are or elevate certain aspects of the ways that we've decided to live out our, our faith before God. And we've elevated ourselves and we, and we use those positions as a way to look down on other people and to justify ourselves. And when these self-justification methods fail us, it leaves us despairing. And what we saw last week is that Jesus, he's left... Um, He's left Jewish territory and he's made his way, as it says in verse 15, 21, that he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And this is a decidedly Gentile territory. It's decidedly Gentile territory. And it's the only time in Jesus' ministry that he ventures off into this northwest corner above Israel and engages people there. 
So let me read it to us with that in mind. And keeping in mind that there are three different snapshots here in chapter 15 that we've been looking at. There's the Canaanite woman that we looked at last week. And then this week we'll look at Jesus' healings and the feeding of the 4,000. But I'm going to sort of go back for a moment to the Canaanite woman. Because as I was studying this week, I realized that all three of them should go together. Because they're all three telling a same kind of story. They're all three illustrating and alluding to the same thing that Jesus is trying to communicate. By withdrawing to the district of Tyre and Sidon and engaging a Canaanite woman and healing the sick and then feeding 4,000 people, he's saying something about the nature of his ministry. So let's read it together. Matthew chapter 15, 29 to 39. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, beside the women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went away to the region of Magadan. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you this morning, and we are grateful for your word as you've revealed it to us here in the scriptures. We ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to come this morning and to reveal the meaning of this text to our hearts that we might see and savor the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to see this wonderful, merciful, compassionate Savior. Help me as I preach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, as I was looking at it more this week, it seems obvious that These three stories are supposed to go together, and I'm going to show us why. So three points this morning, Uh, the woman, the sick, and the crowd. The woman, the sick, and the crowd. So as we said last week that Jesus, he's withdrawn to the region and the district of, of, of Tyre and Sidon, and when he's there, he encounters this Canaanite woman, which should be obvious to us as readers. He's, he's in their territory. He's in their land. It's like saying, I went to France and encountered a French woman. Well, you don't say. Imagine that. And here he is, this Jewish rabbi, and he's encountering um, a Canaanite, and not just 
a Jewish rabbi encountering a Canaanite, but he encounters a Canaanite woman. And as we said, this woman is at the bottom of the social, moral, and spiritual food chain. She's at the bottom of the social, moral, and spiritual food chain in comparison to this Jewish uh, holy man, in comparison to this Jewish rabbi, this teacher of the law, this one who, who has this renown growing in, in Israel as a, as a great teacher of the law, is now encountering someone who is at the bottom, as we would say, of the totem pole. The irony is thick. That this woman had no basis, had no reason, had nothing to come to Jesus, but she comes anyway. Having nothing on her own, nothing in her hands, no pedigree, didn't have anything to offer to Jesus, but she goes to him anyway. And that, my friends, is the entire point of the passage. That she does not appeal to her own goodness, but she appeals to Jesus' goodness. She draws water of comfort from the well of her own miseries. That's what Spurgeon said about this text. The great Baptist preacher in the last previous century, when he preached this passage, says that this woman sees how empty, broken, and empty-handed she actually is. And it drives her to the point where she can only appeal, she can only draw from Jesus' goodness alone. She's got to a place that we all, in our minds, know we need to get, but it's so difficult in our hearts to actually get there. It's so we, we, we know in our minds, we say, yes, I'm a sinner, I have, I have no basis, but in our hearts we lay hold of things, we cling to things, whereby we think that we can come to God on some kind of basis of our own. But it's not true. And this woman finds the great key to life. She finds the great key to the Christian life. She finds and unlocks the door to true, authentic Christianity. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. She sees it, and she embraces it. And when she truly does, when she truly sees it, Jesus replies to her, and she says, Oh, you of great faith. Great faith. The disciples have little faith, right? We're going to see in a moment that they're in this desolate place, just a couple chapters later, Again, asking Jesus, how are you going to feed everybody when they just saw him do it a few chapters back? Commentators would suggest to us that the feeding of the 5,000 was in the spring, and this is about six months later in the fall. So they saw Jesus perform this amazing miracle six months ago, and they get back to the exact same situation again, and they go, how are you going to do it, bro? Little faith. But this woman who clings to Jesus' goodness alone, is commended as one of having great faith. And as Chris said to us in our communion word, verse 29, he says, for such an answer. For such an answer. It's almost like you're the first person that actually finally gets it. The gospel penny, the gospel coin has dropped from your head down to your heart. To the point where you are now appealing to me on my goodness and my goodness alone. And it's taken you to get to a place where you actually have nothing. 
You have no goodness to cling to anyway. That's forcing you to throw yourself onto Jesus and his goodness alone. And that's what the trials and the circumstances of our life are intended to do. The trials and circumstances in your life that you're going through right now, they are being used by God to burn away the dross, to burn away any false perception that you have something to bring to him. To get you to a point of desperation when you only can cling to him and him alone. And it is his good pleasure to do that for you. It is his good loving care to do it for you. Look, we know this as parents, right? We know that, at, at we, that we need to bring, um, uh, at times, acute pain to our children to save a chronic problem. We see it. We, 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 we know more than they do. We're, we're, our, our minds are more mature. We're, we, we've, we've got experience. And so oftentimes with young children, you have to bring acute pain, acute, acute solutions that, that bring pain actually into their lives. Because you know that if we don't, if, without going untouched, it's going to produce for itself a chronic problem that will extend into all their life. Well, how much more with God? The omniscient being in the universe who knows everything, who holds time in his hands, who knows the beginning from the end, who ordains all of history as he knows it, as we know it, and as it is. He knows more than we do. So we must conclude then. We have to conclude. We have no other option to conclude than that this good, loving God is working all things together for our good. Even the painful circumstances. Even the situations that seem inexplicable to us right now. And this woman gets it. Tim Keller says, give me what I deserve. Oh, Tim Keller says, don't give me what I deserve based on my goodness. But give me what I don't deserve because of your goodness. Give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness she gets her request which is help my daughter because she displays for us the only way to approach a holy God is by owning our deficit and embracing his mercy and that's the gospel and when that penny drops for her he says your daughter's healed go home she gets her life She gets her request based on the goodness of Jesus, not when she doesn't appeal of anything in herself. She doesn't say, give me this because I have done X, Y, and Z. And that's the gospel. The good news is God bless me based on what Jesus Christ has done for me. I know I'm a wretched, empty-handed sinner. And I embrace that because I know you are infinitely greater than I am and infinitely better and merciful and loving and caring. So that's point one. The second, as we're cruising along here, is the sick. Verse 29 and 31 says this, that Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and went up to the mountain and sat down, and and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet. And he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is the great Isaiah promise. 
This is what the prophet foretold that the Messiah, the Savior King, the suffering servant would be like. Isaiah says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then they shall, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy and waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and highway shall be there and it should be called the way of holiness. That's what Isaiah promised would happen when the suffering servant, when the king, when the savior, when the anointed one would come. And that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. It's what uh, the hymn writer says. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your savior come, and ye, ye lame for joy. This is the promise. This is the promise that is now coming to fulfillment through Jesus Christ. But what's striking about this text and about this passage is, um, and and I mentioned to you that this only occurs in in Matthew and Mark's gospel, is that Matthew, one of the commentators that I've been using is, is named Bruner, and Bruner has this way of, uh, throughout his commentary, comparing Matthew and Mark. And he's sort of got to the point where he's, he's caricatured them both. He says, Matthew's kind of like the older brother that just gives you the facts. And he said, but Mark is kind of the more gregarious one who kind of gets you into the details of things and really tries to paint a picture for you about what's, what's going on and will give you details and clues that, that Matthew didn't give you. And this is a prime example of that. Because listen to what Mark says. He gives you a story of how Jesus did this. He doesn't just say it broadly. He doesn't just say the the, the mute are are, are speaking, the deaf are hearing, and so on and so forth. He says, let me tell you a story. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd Privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven and he sighed, and he said to him, Be opened. Be opened. See, Matthew just tells us the story just kind of broadly. Here's, here's, here's the details of what Jesus did as he, was, as he was fulfilling the Isaiah prophecy. And Mark says, Yeah, but there was this guy that was brought to him. This guy that was mute. This guy that had a speech impediment. And the people that brought him were begging Jesus to just put his hands on him. And Jesus here does a few things that are really really striking. The first thing that he does is it says that he takes him aside from the crowd privately. Why would he do that? Because this man had likely been a spectacle his whole life. You know, here's the guy that that doesn't speak well. He can't hear anything. And Jesus, the Lord of compassion, says, let's just, let's go over here. Let's just take care of this privately. And then he, he he does this thing where he puts his fingers in his ear and he spits on the ground, and then he touches, and he spits, and he, and he touches his tongue. What's that? 
He's just communicating with him, I think. He's, he's looking at him. He, the, guy, the guy's dead. He says, I'm, I'm going I'm to heal your ear. And I'm going to, and I'm going to, and I'm going to fix your, your speech impediment. Okay, don't, let's, let's just go over here where it's quiet. I know that the crowd's over here. I know that this is confusing. I know that this could be a spectacle. So let's just go over here in private. And I'm going to fix your hearing. And I'm going to fix your speech impediment. And Jesus looks up to heaven. And he, and he groans. And he sighs. And the guy's healed. Now, what's with the... What's with the sign? What's with this, this groan? Does, 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 Jesus, does Jesus need to do these kinds of things to heal people? Does he need to pull people in private? Does he need to touch their ears? Does he need to say some kind of magical incantation over them to heal them? Of course not. The previous passage, all he said is, go home, your daughter's well. That's all he said. He didn't say, okay, let me kind of roll my eyes back here and let me groan and let me kind of touch this and touch that. He just says, she's healed. Go home. Why does he do this? I think a few things. First, I think this, this, this picture and how Jesus treats this man in, 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 in giving this, in, in crying out this groan, is a p- picture very deep into the heart of who Jesus is. It's a picture into the heart of who Jesus is. This text will, will teach us more about the nature of the incarnation and what it means for God to be with us, Emmanuel, than, than hundreds of pages of systematic theology textbooks. This text gives us the insight and shows us the magnitude and shows us the degree to which Jesus is God with us. Jesus has so deeply tied himself to us that he sighs and groans at this man's pain. He is so deeply connected to this man He's so concerned and his whole body is moved to the point that he groans for this man. This is the God who made the universe. This is the one who spoke galaxies into existence. And when he sees a hurting, sick, handicapped man, it causes him to groan. That's amazing. That's amazing that that's the nature of the Savior. That he's the Lord that groans. That he looks into the problems and the weights of your life. And the reality of Jesus Christ becoming a man. The reality of the incarnation. The reality that he is God with us. He's with us even to the end of the age. Means that he has radically and deeply tied himself to us in a way that is beyond all comprehension. A, a, A famous place to go is when... When Saul of Tarsus is persecuting the church in Acts. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus hasn't, isn't the one that's been physically being assaulted here. It's his disciples. It's his people. But he so intimately relates to them through the incarnation, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. That he can say to Saul, what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. It's radical implications for the nature of the incarnation. That Jesus Christ has tied himself to you. 
so intimately, so closely, so radically, that when you come to him and he, with your problems and your concerns, he groans. He's the sighing savior. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ ye blind. Behold, your savior has come. And leap ye lame for joy. But there's another reason that he groans. There's another reason that he groans. There's another place where Jesus will, will groan and where he will cry out. And that is on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus groans here because he is so intimately tied to you and to his people and to this man. But he also groans because the only way that Jesus can bring this kind of healing power, the only way that he can heal this man and give him his life back, the only way that he can actually give the bread to this woman in the previous passage is because he's going to be broken and crucified and crushed for their sake. If we're going to appeal to his goodness and his goodness alone, then something has to be done with our sinfulness. And Jesus Christ here, he's foreseeing. He knows the road that's ahead. He knows that when he heals, when he forgives sin, when he makes mute to, hear, to speak and deaf to hear, he's doing something. He's writing his own death sentence. And the prospect of that, at different times, it causes him to just groan. Foreseeing the great groan, the great cry with which he will cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You were not set free without a cost. You were not set free on a whim. It was the merciful, sighing, groaning, loving Savior who would stand in your place and take your penalty for sin and be crushed under the righteous wrath of the Father so that you could be brought near. So that's the groan. That's the sick. He heals the sick, but he always does so at infinite cost to himself. But point three, the crowd. Now notice in verse 32, back in Matthew 15, 32, how this starts. The account begins with Jesus saying to the disciples, basically, I want you to come here to me. I want you to come here to me. He calls the disciples to himself, and when he's gathered the disciples, he says to them, I have compassion on the multitude. Isn't that just characteristic of Jesus. We've said it many times, I've said it many times, but compassion, compassion is the emotion that is most often attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. More than anything else that can be said of Jesus is that he is compassionate. And we've said this before, but I'll remind you again that this idea of compassion means that your guts are moved. 
It means it's not just a fleeting thought, but it means that it's something that's experienced deep down inside of you. You're moved to your core when you experience compassion and have compassion. It's that feeling that you have when your child's offended by another child on the playground. This this compassion inside of you. That's what Jesus experiences more than any other emotion. He's the man of compassion. He's the savior of compassion. He's the Lord of compassion. He's moved when he sees people hurting. He's moved when he sees the crowds hungry. He's moved inside of himself. He is a compassionate, emotional kind of man. Why is it significant, though, for us to see that Jesus is calling the disciples to himself first, come here to me, and saying, I have compassion on the multitude? It's significant to us because it reminds us of this principle. That the initiative of spiritual blessing always begins with God. The initiative of spiritual blessing always begins with God. It's very important in our understanding of the nature of Jesus and our understanding of the nature of the gospel that all spiritual blessings toward us, towards men and women, come from the divine side, first of all. All spiritual blessings toward men come from the divine side first of all. We do not seek him, he seeks us. And we seek him only because he has first sought us. We love him because he has first loved us. And our love is a response of his love. We don't love him and then sort of provoke him to love us back. We don't urge him and incite him to love us because we love him. But we love him because he's already loved us. He has compassion on them, it says. He first is the man of compassion, the savior of compassion, the Lord of compassion. Not you first, but him first. Calvin said, John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, said of this passage, he said he had compassion upon them and he called them to himself. And the crowd did not come at first because of their brutish dullness. He had compassion on them. He called them to himself. And the crowd did not come at first because of their brutish dullness. How true is that? And it, didn't, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't dissuade him. It doesn't knock him off his mission here. He doesn't get angry because they don't instantly love him back. He moves in towards them first. Waiting and longing for them to respond to his love. The incident is very simply given. As I said earlier, it's very much like the feeding of the 5,000 in details. They're asking where they should get food to feed this great multitude. They're in a desolate place, as it is said in the, in the, in the feeding of the 5,000. And he basically does the same thing. He asks, how many loaves do you have and how many fishes? And they say, there's seven and a few fishes. He tells them to sit down. And he gives the food to the disciples. And they begin to distribute the food. But what does this all mean? I'm not going to preach and explain all the different insights of the feeding. I think you can go back and listen to the sermon of the feeding of the 5,000 and get sort of this unpacked in detail. But instead, what I want to illustrate for you here is why I think these all three go together. 
why I think it's significant to see the woman, the healing, and the feeding of the 5,000. Um, it's been said that the feeding of the 5,000 was the Jewish feast, and that the feeding of the 4,000 is the Gentile feast. And, and, and commentators have said that for 1,900 years. That the, that the first one is a Jewish feast, and the second one is a Gentile feast. Now, why would we think that? Well, it does say in Matthew's Gospel that he's now walking along the Sea of Galilee again, but it says in Mark's Gospel that he was in the region of the Decapolis, which is still a Gentile area. That's the first reason. Second reason we think that he's still in a Gentile region is that after he heals the man, uh, in verse 31, it says that they glorified the God of Israel. Now that phrase, glorified the God of Israel, is a, is a marker, it's a distinction. Okay? It, it usually just says they glorified God, but when it says they glorified the God of Israel, it means they're glorifying a God that's not their God. They're glorifying a God that's not their God, which means that they're Gentiles. And third... I'm going to get a little, I'm not, I'm not going to go a full-blown Da Vinci code on you here, okay? But I am going to get a, a little numerology for just a second. Just, just bear with me, okay? <laughs> Seven is mentioned three times, okay? There were... Seven loaves, he says that twice... And when they were finished eating, there were seven baskets that were full. What does that mean? At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, how many baskets were there left? There was 12. And that was to symbolize that there was enough. There was more than enough for all the tribes of Israel, right? Well, at the end of the Gentile feast, there's seven. And seven is this number of completion, as we see in, in, in the creation account. So I think what, what, what Matthew is intentionally, what Jesus is intentionally saying is that if 12 baskets means that there's enough, that there's more than enough, that there's an overabundance even for all the 12 tribes of Israel, then what he's saying here at the end of chapter 15 is that there's more than enough for all the Gentiles. There's more than enough. There's an overabundance for the entire world to eat and be satisfied. We can take up baskets and baskets of loaves. There will always be an overabundance at this table. His table will always overflow with more mercy, with more love, with more grace. It's a table that can't be exhausted. It's a table that's not just for the Jew. It's a table that's for the entire world. It's a table for all who will come and eat and be satisfied. Thank you. So if there's, there's, there's more than enough for this, for this Gentile Canaanite Syrophoenician woman to take what's left over at the bottom of the table enough to eat and fill and be satisfied. Even if it is, this is a this is a glorious example of redemptive history. That it is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Even in the way that the parables are laid out, that the feeding of the five thousand comes first. There's twelve baskets. Then he goes into Gentile territory, blows everyone's paradigm, heals the Syrophoenician woman's this Canaanite woman's daughter, heals this man in Gentile territory, and then feeds the multitudes. Just like he did for, the, for the, the people of Israel, he feeds to these crowds who are far from the covenant of promise. To the Jew first, then the Greek. That's the nature of his mission. And that's the point. The point is that there is an overabundance, that there is more than enough grace and bread to go around for all to eat, all be filled, all 
be satisfied. By way of application here, let me just give us a couple more and we'll conclude. What else does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ can cleanse anyone. It means that Jesus Christ can cleanse everyone. It doesn't matter how messed up you are. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It simply doesn't matter. He can heal. He can cleanse. He can satisfy anyone. Octavius Winslow said this about this passage. You are not reading of a Savior who was, but of a Savior who is. The Lord Jesus is moved by the same sympathy, is possessed of the same power, and is as quickly and tenderly responsive to the appeal of the sorrowful and necessities of the needies as when the tabernacle of humanity adorned and consecrated our earth and went to its asylum thronged earth's sons and daughters of suffering and woe. Oh, it is a truth as replete with comfort as with wonder. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beloved, cling to this unchanging one. No ebb in the tide of your affection, no tremble in the needle of your faith can create the slightest variation in his love or faithfulness for you. Your waywardness has not chilled it. Your fickleness has not affected it. Your sinfulness has not forfeited it because he is essentially immutable and eternally the same. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That is the great promise of this man, Jesus Christ. This man of compassion 2,000 years ago on this crowd, on this hillside towards these people is the same man who sits at the right hand of the Father today. And there is nothing that can calm, can cool his love, his mercy, his grace for you. All can be cleaned. All can be made clean. All can be satisfied. There is nothing in you that can separate you from him. That's what Paul says. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Even you. There will always be more grace in him than there is sin in you. Always and forever because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beloved, cling to the unchanging one. Let not conscience let you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is that you feel your need of him. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you'll better, you will never come at all. Lo, the incarnate God ascending pleads the merits of his blood. Venture on him, venture freely. Let no other trust intrude. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. Last application point. He cleanses everyone a little bit differently. Jesus' compassion is real, and he'll always give you what you need. And in our three stories this morning, it's a, it's, it plays out in very different ways. To this one woman, he has this kind of terse, odd response at first. Calls her a dog. But it challenges her faith. It challenges her to hold on. It challenges her to press in even further and he says for such an answer and then there's this man who needs to be 
pulled aside and he, and he pulls him aside and he, and he looks at him and he speaks to him on his own terms and he heals him. And then there's this great crowd that just needs some nourishment. And he multiplies it and he gives them exactly what they need. He cleanses everyone differently and he's always going to give you what you need. Everything is necessary that he sends you. And that which is not necessary, he withholds from you. Everything that is necessary, he sends you. And that which is not necessary, he withholds from you. That's hard to see, just to kind of circle back and come to a close here. That's hard to see in the moment, isn't it? It's hard to put yourself in the shoes of the woman. It's hard to put yourself in the shoes of the, of the, of the, of the deaf and mute man, what it's like to be on, on the crowds or even your own life. It's hard to see. We think we know. We think, we think that if, if, we, if we, we, we know, we think we, we don't have what's necessary and we want to know why God's withholding it. But if these texts and these passages show us anything, it's that Jesus Christ is the compassionate, merciful Savior who will always give us exactly what we need on his perfect timing. So my friends, this morning, lay hold of him by faith. Venture on him. Venture holy. Venture freely. Don't let anything else keep you from doing it. Don't let your sin of the week, don't let the challenging circumstances of your life, don't let anything hold you from venturing onto him freely and completely by faith right now. If you wait till you're better, you're never going to come at all. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the work of Jesus Christ in our place and on our behalf. And we are the dogs under the table. We are all Gentiles here. And we're thankful and we're just so grateful that there is an overabundance on your table that there is more than enough to go around, that there are baskets full that are just waiting of bread that will satisfy. Help us, Lord, to cling to it, to lay hold of it by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Very fittingly, we're gonna sing his mercy is more as we prepare our hearts for communion. Stronger than darkness, and new every morn, his mercy is more. The table is open for all who've repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ and have made that faith public through the waters of baptism. You can come up row by row, starting from the back, bring the elements back to your seat, and uh, we will partake of the table corporately.